y'all brand that I hope you understand. Work hard, play hard, get up, stack bands. Time to get up, then slap your hands. Chilling in the club with all my friends. Living in the moment, hope it's never gonna end. Love a new beginning, but I skip to the end. I listen to the beat, I hope to ascend. I hope to cherish and I hope to win. We are live for another worthwhile spotlight. I'm happy to introduce our guest, Claire Garner. What's up, my friend? Good, how are you? Hanging in there. It's Good. been so hot recently, man. I tell you, in Nashville, I don't know about you, but you walk outside, it's like walking into an aquarium. I, I was gonna say oven. It's like <laughs> well, because it's hot and it's wet. It's just nasty. Oh, fair, fair. So, yeah, stay well, inside where the AC is. So thank you for having a cool in here. And then we, as we just turned the AC off in here, we're like, we gotta get sound <laughs> in here. You had it on until yeah, I got here. Exactly. But yeah, so owner of Mule House, yeah. visionary behind the Mule House. Mm -hmm. um, where's that located, just in case anyone so know. the Mule House is a music and concert venue that we built in Columbia, Tennessee, which a lot of, I'm sure your viewers and listeners know, is called Mule Town. So we named the building the Mule House. And it's a former First Baptist Church, and it's just a block and a half off the downtown square. Murray County is the county seat. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Columbia is the county seat for Murray County. And there's just this hotbed of activity that's going on here, I'm sure you know about. Okay. Um, and so we were lucky enough to buy the former First Baptist Church, 55,500 square feet, and we turned it into a music and concert venue, also built around live streaming. So it's, it's, I feel it's like it's, cool. it's done, well, obviously there's way more growth for it to happen and stuff, but I feel like the impact has probably been what you wanted it to be. Would you agree? Or? Well, yes, yes. Uh, I think the the important thing to remember though is that it wouldn't have happened it wouldn't have hit as hard and as heavy as it has had it not been for the support of this amazing community i mean the people that live here the way they've wrapped themselves around it i'm so grateful every time i you know we have an event people come up and they just say thank you but thank them i think it, it also i remember because obviously i worked there as well and it's also been a, a benefit for me is just as far as like being able to network being around people and just i guess being in a music venue like that but I remember the first show that, that was there, I, you know, just talking to people coming up and they're like, oh, we came down here from Nashville. And I'm like, that's just, you don't hear that. Like normally just growing up here, it's like, we go to Nashville, you go so-and-so to, to actually go to a show. And just the fact that people are Ubering from Nashville. It's here, crazy, right? It's, it's wild. And it gets even crazier because we've had people from California, we've had people from Montana, and best of all, Australia. Really? Come just here for an event at the Mule House in Little Columbia, Tennessee, in my new hometown. Wow, that's wild. Did you know? Did you know them, the people from no, Australia? No, no, we got to know them after the show. Just, wow. you know, always curious about who's coming to the events because we want to try to refine and make it better, and you know, make the experience deeper and richer for everyone. And so you kind of talk with some of the people who are there, and you know, you find out some folks are from Australia. I mean, it's like. That wasn't part of the plan originally, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm but so I mean, grateful. Theoretically worldwide at that point. Well, that's true, thanks to the live streaming aspect of it. Is that, do you know how they heard about it? I think it was from the band, we had a band called, uh, oh gosh, was it Home Free or? No, uh, King and Country, for King and Country. And you know, they followed the band on the website and they said they're gonna be in Tennessee. And, for whatever reason with this particular couple it struck a bell or rang a chord what do you say rang a bell struck a chord there you go getting it all mixed Same up yeah. but yeah so they decided they were going to go ahead and fly out and enjoy here in the states and come to our neck of the woods so it's pretty cool nice um obviously i want to talk a little bit more about mule house and stuff but you know 
pre-Mule House, I know you were in the broadcasting industry. What, what got you into that? You know, first of all, I'm a big believer that, and I, I don't mean to get all super religious on you or anything, but no. I think spiritually, um, God will open doors for all of us. And it's for you and it's for me to summon our own courage to believe in ourselves enough to walk through those doors. And my entire professional career has been exactly that. You know, radio was something I never pursued. My passion in life before I had kids has always been cars. And I bought my first car when I was 11, mowing lawns for $50. I paid J.W. Pinkett in Amarillo, Texas, 50 bucks for a 1964 Dodge. It had a, a rod knocking, it was not, you know. Bought it for 50, I think I sold it for 55, so. Made a profit. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, for an 11-year-old, that yeah. was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I did that, and I, I've always collected cars. I'd, I'd like to work on them, and typically I'll lose money on them, selling them. But it's just this passion that I've always had. So I was a senior in high school, and in my small hometown of Canyon, Texas, in our neighborhood, there was a fellow at the end of the street that owned this peacock blue, uh, white porthole roof, 1957 Ford Thunderbird that I just thought was great. And at this point, I'd already started my first corporation, and it was a car detailing company. So I had four college kids that worked for me, and I was this high school kid who'd go to the local dealerships for cars that had been traded in, and then we would detail them at my house. So, you know, overhead was pretty low. Thanks, Mom and Dad. <laughs> and uh, I was the front man. I'd run the cars back and forth, and they would do that. So thankfully, that first step into being an entrepreneur allowed me to buy more cars, and really that's the reason that I did it. So back to the guy with the 57 Ford Thunderbird. I wanted to buy that car from him and he didn't want to sell it. I was talking to him in his driveway about it. He didn't want to sell it. And I was disappointed, but so it was. So I went home. Next day I got home from school and my mom had left a note on the bar and it said that he wanted to see me to come to his office. I thought, great, he's gonna sell me the car, right? So I go and I get my checkbook. I'm all proud. I'm gonna have a 57 Thunderbird in no time. I drive up to the address and it was the local radio station. Like, oh, I didn't know him that. Hmm. So I walked in, his name was Jack, Jack Aldridge. And I said, hey, Jack, good to see you, man. He goes, oh, good to see you too. I said, you're gonna sell me the car, right? And he's like, what? I said, well, you told me to come by. He goes, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not why I was calling you. I said, okay. He said, no, I was listening to you talk yesterday when you're in my driveway, and I think that you have a good voice and you should go on the radio. Like, he goes, do me a favor, just come into this room here, which I would later find out it was called a production room, it's where you do commercials. And he said, read this for me. Put me in front of a microphone, hit play and record on the tape, reel to reel. And uh, I read this commercial for a Mexican food place. And he goes, hold on a second. And he goes out and he gets the guy, comes back in and he says, this is Tony Mathis, our program director. This is the kid I was telling you about. And he hits play. And Tony's listening to it and he's like, wow. And I'm like, guys, what? He goes, no, we really think you should give this a shot. He said, do me a favor. I said, I, I had no interest in it. He said, do me a favor, just do this one Sunday night, six to midnight shift and see what you think. So I went in there, they told me nothing about what to do except for, you know, here's where you put the real or the, the album, here's how you hit play and here's how you turn up the volume, that was it. So I went in and I did it. And at the time, you know, I was a senior in high school, I was always that kid that I was the good kid. I was honor society. I refused to let the football players cheat off my test, which they wanted to, and so it made me very unpopular with them, and they picked on me a lot. I was really pretty bullied in high school. And um, 
So I went to school after this one Sunday shift. And all of a sudden, these kids that had been picking on me in school were like, Hey man, is that, is that you on the radio the other day? I was like, yeah. He goes, that was kind of cool. Was, well, thank you. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, I felt really good. And yeah. So they, from that one shift, they offered me six to midnight. Uh, and the only reason I did it was because it was a solid salary that I could then go in and buy new cars. So I went and bought a new Corvette. I bought a new Audi. It's the only reason I did it. And three months later, uh, I was, of course, Canyon was market, or Amarillo was market 185 or something like that at the time. Three months later, I got a job offer in Dallas, Texas, which was market number nine. So I was like, well, yeah. So I did that. And anyway, it kind of progressed on like that. Everything I've ever done has always been God opening these doors, challenging me. Do you have the courage? Do you yeah. believe enough in yourself to make this dream come true? And I've always been a big proponent in saying that whatever your dream is, as long as you will marry action to that, you can make it happen. See, I was just gonna say, like hearing that story, like there's the connection between that blue thunderbird and the desire mm -hmm. to want it, mm -hmm. that which made you, you know, work towards it, and then a door, unexpected door, opens that you had no idea about. Mm -hmm. So it's like I feel like there's a concept there of the desire aspect. Yeah, and you know, over the course of time, of course, as an 18-year-old, I didn't really have the uh, full capacity to understand exactly what was happening. You know, then I was more focused on the material gain. I was focused on yeah. getting that car. Yeah, uh, but. You know, with the gift of time and with the gift of wisdom that comes with that time, you begin to understand really and truly why your passion matters. That it's not necessarily about a car. It's really about expressing something you know deep down inside of yourself. Let me, let me share with you the two life lessons that my parents gave me and my brothers, and it served us all really well. My dad has always been the guy through, who would say, if you're going to make a mistake, you make it as big and as loud and as hairy as you possibly can. Commit yourself, because if you don't, you'll never know what it's like to climb to the top of the summit, to be the winner, right? And then that, coupled with my mom's lesson, which I think is even more important, was it doesn't matter what you're going to do, the odds don't apply to you. Mm. The odds don't apply to you. She would always say there's something inside of you that will always figure it out, that will always overcome what holds others back. Mm. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. When you realize that what you need is inside of yourself, and it's not in another person, it's not in another thing, it's all in you. It's just up, you know, the challenge really is up to you. Yeah. Will you do it? When did you, uh, obviously you said you didn't really understand those concepts mm -hmm. at that time frame right. when it was happening. What, when did that start clicking when you started looking back? Like, well, you know, when I started making some good money and I realized that I wasn't happy. That's not, yeah, that's I not. I was actually less happy in a way. Uh, I was single and I just, you know, unless you have someone with whom you can share that, it's a really kind of lonely, empty feeling. And uh, I think that when I realized that money did not bring true happiness, that was one thing. And then the other really was having kids. You know, because when you have your own kids, it causes you to think about like how you were raised. And you know, there are gonna be some things that your parents taught you that you want to then 
you know, put into your raising of your own kids, and there may be some other things that you don't want to do. But that's really when I sat down and kind of distilled down those life lessons from each of my parents. And that became really, really crucial with me and my own kids. So now, you know, it's kind of, I've distilled it to my kids as this. Uh, you can do anything in life that you choose as long as you do two things. Work hard and be kind. I mean, yeah. They'll repeat that immediately to you. Yeah. Because they've been here, you know, For since they their were Their entire kids. life, yeah. That and my, also my daughter, I always told her, I said, you know what, as you go through life, there is no one, you know, thinking about some man. I said, you can find satisfaction in and of yourself, inside. You don't need it from another person. You don't need it from a thing. It's all inside of you. And, and that alone too, like you can't even, you can't give your best version of yourself mm -hmm. to somebody or, or to share the happiness or whatever it may be unless you're fulfilled inside. That's already. right. I think there, there's a couple people I know in my life that like their mindset is like, I need a, a significant other to be complete. Mm -hmm. And if you keep striving for that, then you're, you're missing the, you're missing the point. You're never looking internally. Yeah. Um, when well, during it, those single days, you know, I almost looked at myself as a victim in a way. It's like, look at what I've done. Look at, look at these things that I have. Why doesn't somebody mm -hmm. want to, you know, I was going about it all wrong. You want someone to fall in love with your heart. You want someone to fall in love with who you are as a person. Not that you have this car or that you have this house or, or any track of those record things. or whatever, whatever yeah. it may you be. You know, in fact, if someone is attracted to you for those things, it's not good. run. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Because they're, they're probably lacking that internal connection themselves. So then that's going to make the, you know, the, the chemistry which won't be there. Well, it's all selfishly motivated as well. It's kind of like, Fair. you know, what can you do for me? Yeah. yeah. You don't, you don't want to surround yourself with people like that. No, no. So how long were you in the broadcast? Time frame, like what was that like? Well, so I started my senior in high school, and uh, I guess that was—it's been like thirty years, maybe thirty-five. I bet it's taken you though, like to places and things that you at that time frame had no idea were going to unfold. You know, the weirdest thing is, okay, so I started the car company was when I was fifteen, but then nineteen ninety-three, I had been working in New York City for ABC, and my boss there, whom I now just respect tremendous. I always respected them, but I now feel as if he's a mentor and also a friend. But at that time, uh, I would later find out that he was going through some addiction issues and was an extraordinarily difficult person for whom to work. And I, I was in the middle of a three-year contract in New York and it was not made to be, you know, to get out of. But after several months of working, nine months of working for this man, I, I found myself becoming bitter and really kind of challenging my core values of what I would and would not accept for myself. And it's mm -hmm. kind of one of those either put up or shut up deals. So I went to dinner with his boss, also my former direct boss, and I said, look, this is just not working. And uh, he said, well, you know, so-and-so, this person's name, doesn't feel as if they understand you. And I said, you know why he doesn't understand me? Because the things that motivate me in life are truth, integrity, honesty, the golden rule. Those are my values, and to him those are concepts, and I don't even think they are ones that he understands. He said, do me a favor, just give me three months, mark it on your calendar, three months. We're gonna make, we're working with him, things are gonna get better. And if at the end of three months you still want out of your deal, you can do it. 
So man, I went home and I marked on my calendar exactly what that day was. And I marched into the corner office with all the windows there and I said, today's the day. He said, what? I said, no, you said three months. Today is three months. I want out. He said, are you kidding? I said, no. I said, I just need you to be a man of your word. Let me out of my contract. Did, did he remember telling you like oh, yeah. three months? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so he did and I gave my two weeks and man, I, I decided I was going to do it right. I, I <laughs> had a limousine waiting for me at the end of that show that day and it took me to the airport and I flew home to my town of Canyon, Texas, where I'd had a car in storage, one that I'd driven in, in college, and I drove it out to LA. The interesting thing was, because I was still in the midst of that three-year contract, during that time, knowing that I was gonna depart, I couldn't enter into any negotiations with any other prospective employer, mm -hmm. because they then would be sued for tampering with my contract. You don't wanna get into a lawsuit yeah. with ABC. So, you know, I was very, very, I adhered to that and, and didn't do anything. So flew home, got in this car that hadn't been driven in three years, whatever it was, and uh, drove to LA. So to go from the afternoon drive show in New York City. Cross country. There was really, well, yeah, cross country, but the, the thing was, where could I go that it wouldn't be seen as a step back? Because New York City was the number one market. The, the shift that I had, I was one of the top 10 most listened to DJs in America. And it's like, I don't want to be seen as if I'm taking a, a back step. Uh, at best, it needed to be a lateral move. I mean, at, at a minimum lateral yeah. move. So there's one station in America that would uh, fulfill that need, and that was Kiss FM in LA. Rick Dees was the morning guy at the time, and I happened to have a, a previous uh, friendship with the guy who was a program director. So I drove into LA, and I called that, the number there for Kiss, a man named Jeff Wyatt, who I think the world of, and uh, he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm here in LA. He said, oh, that's awesome, man. You here to visit? And I said, no, no. He said, I'm, I'm here to, uh, to live. He goes, you're moving here? I said, yeah. He said, do you have a job? I said, no. Why don't you come in? Let's uh, sign papers. And later that afternoon, first day in LA, I went mm -hmm. in and I signed the papers and I became the afternoon drive guide for KISS in LA. So that was pretty remarkable that I was able to, again, jump off that cliff with the belief that God will provide. And uh, he really did. And, and the beauty of that difficult time having worked for this difficult person was I walked away from that knowing that I was at a fork in the road. Am I going to go down the path of being the victim who feels as if life is unfair, why did this guy come in and ruin all my best made plans? That's one route you can go, but that's not a very positive route. In fact, it's a, a very uh, destructive it's route. Negative, yeah. It is. The other route is take that emotion, take that and let it become a fuel for you. I like to say, uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times on previous podcasts, but there's a perspective there's two perspectives you can have in anything in life and it's something happened for you mm -hmm. or happened to you yeah and it's just what you just said in a different terms but like you could take what that that happened and like the negative that came from it and flip that into mm -hmm. that happened for me now I'm going here it's the next step right or you like you said you could have went home and you could have like not done anything in radio the rest of your life right and that that for me the thing was you know, the experience was so difficult and so challenging. Was it a self-reflective period? Or was it a one? It was a reminder of the importance of 
standing up for yourself, recognizing your own self worth, your own self worth. Yeah, that I was worthwhile, and uh, so what I did was I took the positive, the the productive route, and I used all of that energy to say I don't want to be in a situation where I have to work for anyone else again. And it took me two years, but I wrote the business plan for an idea that I had. And it was for sure that I launched as my own company again. It's called After Midnight. Uh, we launched in uh, November of 1993, and we outpaced Rush Limbaugh's the fastest growing syndicated radio show, still unbeaten to this day, uh, in America. We were on 270 radio stations across the country. Mm. Uh, and that was all again because I identified a niche that no one else had served, and we decided that we were going to serve that, but we we're going to go big or go home. In fact, it's interesting that that the third month after which we had launched, we were already up to 100 affiliates. People were just dumbfounded by it, no one more than I. And uh, at that point, my former employer, ABC, decided that they were going to launch kind of a, an investigation to figure out whether there was room in this field that I had uncovered or not, so that they too could offer a show. So they had a kind of an exploratory committee that went out and uh, they came back to them and said, he's already locked it up. It, it's a category killer. And that was again, the whole idea, like my dad said, go big or go home. Yeah. We spent in marketing for that program, the first quarter alone, more than most uh, record companies spent in promotion for their entire label in this one trade publication, Radio and Records at the time. We spent over $250,000 in three months just in taking out double page, uh, four color ads. And you know, where do you get money like that? Well, again, it was, it was writing the business plan and then pounding the streets and then securing the venture capital on your own. So two doctors at Cedars-Sinai underwrote uh, the business plan and it took us $1.2 million to, to launch and uh, we were right at $750,000 when a company came and made an offer for us of uh, $900,000, so it had been a $150,000 profit. We're like, nah, nah, we want a million. I said, oh, no, too bad. So that's all right. Again, we kind of knew what our worth was. Yeah. Waited two more years, same company ended up buying us for $9.2 million. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's an investment of yourself right there. Well. And I have to be clear, that's not all Blair Garner money. No, that no, was, you know, the, the venture capital people are really the ones who made the, the, the good money with it. But what it did do, once we sold the show, um, I stayed on for another 17 years as the host. And I mean, that was a good salary, you know, and I didn't have the, the worries about management, all that other kind of stuff. But yeah. What was the, the light bulb moment when you were creating the business plan with it? Like, when would, did you like, oh, there's a, there's a niche here. So, sorry, it's a little convoluted. To say. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, in radio, you know, er everything you hear on the radio is broken into different date parts. You have the morning show, midday show, afternoons, evenings, but then there's also the overnight programming. Now, this is not the sexy time of day to be on the air. And uh, it, for the program directors, they're the ones responsible for staffing all of those different day parts. And typically the jocks that would go on overnight, those were the ones who were young in the game. They would refine their talents. And of course they then would want to be on the morning show or they'd want to do the afternoon show. They want to step up their own career. So this overnight day part became a revolving door for the program directors. And if there were no one available to take that shift, who do you think gets to go in and do it? 
It's the program director, the decision maker. So I thought, well, this is a problem. We identified the problem. Now, what is the solution? And is there enough there? So did a lot of market research and concluded, uh, a solid conclusion, that the size of a daytime audience for a radio station compared to the size of an a overnight listenership, it's about 30% for overnights what it would be in the afternoons. Not an impressive number in and of itself, but my theory was if I take that 30% of Phoenix and I add that to the 30% of Milwaukee and the 30% of Detroit and Los Angeles and New York City and you know on and on and on, then you have for yourself a huge network of listeners that had never before been identified. Hmm. And it was really interesting too because a lot of people said, "Why he's doing you know afternoons in New York and L.A. Why would this guy want to do an overnight show?" And we were kind of playing it close to the vest at the time that I was the that was my idea and that you know I had a stake in it. But we kind of had to let that out there so it would give people a certain level of comfort that they could then let us take over that day part, knowing that it wasn't going to be another revolving door thing. There. So 20 years in total. You know, we had 2.8 million listeners at any given moment uh, for an overnight day part. It's impressive. You know, we were the we were the only game in town, and so again, we were category killer because we, you know, I believe strongly that you got to be the firstest with the mostest. Um, and you identified that market. You kind of created. Yeah, you know, that sounds. was the great the the moment of gratification. Really, I think was that then other people were like, this was right in front of us the whole time. Yeah. How did we not see this? Hmm. But it was the, the light, fuel yeah. from that negative experience in yeah. New York that led yeah. all of that. That would have never happened. No. If you, yeah. And never would have happened had I not been knocking on Jack Aldridge's, you know, trying to buy that 57 Thunderbird. Fair, fair. This color. Kind of. That, 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 what's that, like a Tiffany blue, you'd say? Yeah, boy, I wouldn't have been quite that specific. <laughs> but look at you, you must be shopping in the high dollar stores. <laughs> Tiffany blue. <laughs> Either that you have a it's girlfriend that's a little demanding. <laughs> I'm single. I'm good. <laughs> no, it was it was a little bit darker blue than this, but kind of okay. you get the idea. Nice. Um, you were saying uh, earlier you're like pillars of truth, integrity, yep. and a golden rule. What's the golden rule? If you don't mind sharing that. Yeah, treat others the way that you would want to be treated. It's what we learn in church every Sunday. It's a kid growing up. You think that a lot of people don't do that? Majority of people? I wouldn't say the majority. That would be kind of a wide swath, but I will say that a lot of people fall into the temptation of always doing what is to their immediate benefit. And I believe that with respect to the golden rule in today's business, you earn your character by doing the right thing. And that means doing the right thing even when it's not to your advantage, you know, because it may be a short term loss on your end, but in the long term, you've actually in, invested in the value of your last name. I told the kids, you know, the, the biggest thing I'll ever have to leave you is not a house or a car or anything. It's really the value of your last name. Mm. It takes years to build up that reputation and one moment of short-sighted selfishness can lose everything. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, that doing the right thing when no one is looking, I'm always inspired by people who do things for charity and never allow their name to be seen. Mm. The anonymous approach. I have a good friend who's one of the biggest selling artists of all time. And, and I mean of all time. Music artist? Or let's just say artist. Okay. Okay. But could walk into any building in America, in the world actually, and people know who this is. 
this person has done more things to help others, but it's always been, and I only, you know, because I'm kind of on the inside with this person, it's always been as long as you don't say, my name is never to be attached to this. Now see, to me, this person is not doing it for any kind of self-serving reasons. No. It's simply wanting to give back. It's simply wanting to do the right thing. And I think that that kind of approach toward, you know, these people who will make a donation to something and uh, they, they proclaim it from the mountaintops. Take, for example, Amber Heard, who said she's going to give all this money away and, you know, well, that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you don't trumpet it from the mountaintops if you're really doing it because your genuine concern is just to, do, to help yeah, other people. It would matter if anyone knew. That's if right. It, yeah, if it was genuine. As soon as you start trumpeting that, you're really serving your own needs. Yeah. You know? Which is serving the ego, right. which is not your higher self right. in the spiritual world. Are you a big reader? Comic books when I was a kid. No, I always, I always, you know, people say, what books do you read? And I say, well, ones with big pictures. <laughs> Easy to read. Which know? is kind of funny because my, my middle brother, he's the editor-in-chief of Black's Law Dictionary. You know, the, the reference dictionary for lawyers all across the country. He had two books published with Justice Scalia of the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a good friend of his. Chief Justice John Roberts has attended my brother's speaking engagements. Hmm. He was part of the advance team for Neil Gorsuch. Uh, you know, and he... He read enough for everyone in the family, you know. Uh, mine was always more visual. Um, I'm a very, I'm a very visual person. Visionary. Well, you know, internally like I'd like to say that. Yeah. But uh, I'm a lot like my mom in that when mom, when she had an idea for something, it wasn't just an idea that she would present to you. She would present to you an idea and it had a start, and it had a middle, and it had a conclusion. Here's the idea, here's how we're gonna do it, this the is what happens. Whole picture. It was the 360 thing, and it was just instantly into her mind. And I think that, though I'm not nearly as gifted as my mom in that respect, you know, I do have a, a, a bit of her shining through in that respect, that just because you don't see something currently doesn't mean that it isn't there, or there's not a, a market for it. Again, it goes back to that trust, right? Yeah, yeah. listening to your own voice faith in, in yourself, which is, I think I, I've been on a journey of like discovering like the, the faith aspect internally and mm -hmm. the spiritual side of things. And like, I think you're tested the most, right? When you're about to be rewarded with whatever it may be, whether it's enlightenment mm -hmm. or an actual you know business or whatever it mm -hmm. may be, but you're tested the most. And I feel like that it's, you're the only one that could control mm -hmm. like how, what your faith is or your belief in yourself or your belief in anything outside of you. But it all comes full circle back to you know, the internal. With the Mule House, this is a perfect example of uh, going big or going home. You know, there's this thing called the rollover business startup plan from the government, and it's uh, your retirement accounts. You can basically set up a new uh, corporation with a retirement account. So you literally can transfer your retirement accounts over to this new corporation, and then that corporation will provide the seed money to launch whatever your business is. Hmm. So rollover business startup. So I decided, you know what, rather than trusting, you know, uh, some kind of an investment group to oversee my uh, retirement, I felt like, you know what, 
I would rather bet on myself than I would on the market. So as you've had throughout your life, so it's kind of like another opportunity to trust in yourself. Yeah, you know, the, the thing of it is, yeah, you can trust that the market may make, you know, 10, 15, 20% year over year, but that's waiting for someone else to do it for you. I'm not that person. I will bet on myself all in because I know what I will do. Yeah. Well, outside of uh, your parents giving you those quotes and then you had a mentor in New York or was it LA that you Well, had? you know, that, that was a, uh, a negative mentor. But actually, I take it back because I did learn a See, real lot of really good things from this person. Uh, well, I was going to say, it's like what outside of those, those three people that you've mentioned, outside influences, what would you, or other mentors like not in the realm of radio or was there anything I else? I think... That, Peaks your mind? I, well, you know, I had some great modeling from my dad, especially, who was tireless in his work, uh, and my mother, who was tireless in her dedication to being a wonderful wife and mother. That was her focus. Um, so there was some good uh, modeling going on from my parents. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, there, well, there have been some mentors. Rick Dees was a mentor. You know, he was really gracious in, uh, in helping me along the way in his own special way. Uh, there have been mentors that I would reach out to that I would say, you know, I want to learn from you. And that's one of the things I'm really curious all the time. As we're looking at, you know, broadening out the, the Mule House, our master plan is that not only we have the music uh, venue, but also the fully built out bar, a restaurant, and about a 40-room boutique hotel, all within this 55,000-square-foot property that we own. Um, and with respect to the hotels, you know, a mentor doesn't necessarily have to be someone that you know personally, no. uh, but you can learn through observation. And this man, his name is Ian Schrager. And in 1977, Mr. Schrager, along with Steve Rubell, started Studio 54 in New York City wildly famous and then because of some short-sighted decision making wildly infamous because you know they were changing register tapes in the middle of the night at the uh, conclusion of a the night they would have this stack of money as they here's some for you here's some for you here's some for you and then they would divide it and some of them were putting it up in the ceiling and i guess the story is and i, I don't really have the personal knowledge to know but but what I understand is that at some point there was a disgruntled employee that turned them into the IRS. And rightfully so. They, they went to prison. They did it, you know, and, and they deserved to take their, their share of punishment for that. Uh, they did their time. They came out of uh, prison in the 80s. Disco was dead. And so they became people of reinvention. And for Ian Schrager, he had always been in love with the hotel industry. So that's kind of after he went back to that. First thing they did was they did a partnership and they uh, developed the Palladium in New York City, Great Night Club, where MTV did Downtown Julie Brown, Wubba Wubba. Mm. You're too young. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, sounds familiar. You don't have to agree. I, I mean, I've, heard, I've heard the Wubba Wubba, but I couldn't tell you if you asked me. No, it's all right. Was, it's basically pre-TRL. You know TRL? No. Don't. Anyway, <laughs> you know who Carson Daly is? No. I've heard the name. I'm very... I'm very this is like I'm very in tune with certain you have things. Television? Yeah, but I don't watch. That's the thing. Like I growing up, like yeah. of course, like watches like kid and stuff like that. But like as probably around like seventeen, eighteen, like I just I don't really watch anything at all. Like 
Well, so back in the day, well, it's Carson Daly, who's now the host of The Voice. Okay. Uh, back in the day, did this thing called TRL, which is Total Request Live, and it was, I think they broadcast from the square in Times City, uh, Times Square in New York City. And before that, it was a show called, uh, I don't know, it was Downtown Julie Brown hosting this thing at the Palladium, it was a big deal. Anyway, back to Schrager. So they did the Palladium, and uh, sadly, Steve Rebell passed away, um, and then Ian decided he was going to get out of the club business and really do his first love, which was hotel. And so he is the guy widely credited with developing the boutique hotel industry. And he is a mentor to me. I've never met the man. I actually wrote him a fan letter. I've written two fan letters in my life, one to Lee Iacocca and one to Ian Schrager. Did you get a response? From, well, I did from Lee Iacocca. You know, I was a 14 year old kid in Canyon, Texas, wrote him to congratulate him on the new K car. I mean, I was just such a and dork. And you got a response. I what did you? get a response. I mean, I'll never begin to tell you what that meant to see that Chrysler, you know, logo on the envelope and then to have this hand-signed letter from Lee Iacocca to this little kid in Canyon, Texas. Man, I treasure that. Thing. You still have it? Of course I do. I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> but Ian Schrager, um, you know, I've watched every interview that he has ever done and he talks about, you know, we are the in the experience economy where the real value of luxury it used to be that, you know, like for for my parents, luxury was defined as like, you know, a Rolls Royce or, you know, gold gilded ceilings or things like that. That's just so passe now. The real luxury of today is experience mm. and it's how you make people feel. And, you know, Mr. Schrager is, I think, now in his 70s, but he, he not only speaks that, you know, he shows it. Actions are far louder than his words. And he says in these uh, interviews that I've watched, it doesn't matter whether he's doing a property for Shanghai or for Miami or for Kansas City, as long as when a guest walks into his property, they look around and they're like, wow. If you can get that kind of reaction from them, you've effectively transported them to a different time and a different place. And if you can do that, the economics of it all will work itself out. Yeah. And you know, that's proving to be true here in Colombia. I mean, we went all in, there's no reason on God's green earth that we should have invested the amount of money that we have in a town that had really no previous history for being a, uh, you a know, music hub in that sense. Yeah. But again, believe in the dream, field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. That married with this uh, idea of Ian Schrager. And you know, it's, it's amazing because we just concluded our first year of business. Uh, and within our first year, we were lucky enough to host 151 private events, 51 concerts, of which 17 were sellouts. First year of operation. Which is phenomenal. We are extremely grateful for the blessings that have come from the hard work. And I have to note too on the experience aspect, like you've done a phenomenal job with that at the Mule House because you know working there is a different perspective because you're you're in there and it's, you don't get to walk in for the first time like you know process. So yeah, I've always, I was there before open you know in that aspect, but after like the first or second week of working there, there was a, a songwriters night that I wanted to go to just to experience like not As a guest, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I remember before walking in and like knowing that that's what your mindset was behind it. Like I really like, you know, took a couple deep breaths and I was like, I want to walk in like I've never been here before. And it, you, you, you're transported. Well, like you said, you're, you're, that's it's, the goal. It's a different spot. You, you, where else are you going to go like that in Colombia or anywhere like around? You know, it's funny. We, 
the, the people that did the sound and lighting for the building are Claire Brothers, so phenomenal. They did Radio City Music Hall, they did the Franklin Theater here, they did the new Bluegrass Museum. I mean, these are Garth's people, right? And my friend John McBride, who's Martina's husband, set me up with them. And again, kind of God's plan. Turns out that the head of, uh, that would oversee the project lives here in Columbia, hmm. just a few blocks away from the Mule House. Wow, that's Small just God saying, here you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, they did all the sound and lighting, and it was built without excuse. Uh, in fact, with respect to the video component, it's 15 miles of cable in there that will mm. go to a singular port on the side of the building for the TV trucks to pull up. But because we built it that way, we can now lay claim to the fact that over the course of the past year, that first year of operation, when Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show said, ladies and gentlemen, the Pistolanis, they cut to Miranda, Angelina, and Ashley on our stage in Columbia, Tennessee, performing their single at the Mule House. See, that right there is just like mind-blowing. It's amazing. And then we got a call from Apple TV. Apple TV took over the building for an entire week. And uh, I unfortunately cannot share the, the names because of a non-disclosure agreement. But probably one of the most important actresses of the last couple of decades the executive producer on this, and uh, they filmed something which is just mind-blowing, and it's a show that will debut on Apple Apple Plus uh, this next first quarter of next year. I was about to say, I wonder, was wondering when, yeah. which I um, obviously won't say any details, but I was fortunate to work that day, and it was like, a great just, day, just being there, I was yeah. like, what is happening here? Like, yeah. this is crazy. This. That was the day they actually shot the, the uh, episodes, you know, and, and it's so funny, the community was like, why are all these no trailers way. and stuff in the back of the, you know, because there were oh, yeah. star trailers, their oh, makeup, yeah. and all that kind of Food, stuff. Food, everything, yeah. But, you know, again, all that is, it's validation for the fact that if you build it, if you they, build will come. it they will come. Yeah. There's a question I'd like to ask I have all the guests on here is if you can go back to a time frame in your life, any specific age, doesn't, I guess it could be a roundabout, but if you can give yourself advice, what age... And what would you tell yourself? I would go back to, well, there would be one point I'd go back and say, don't marry them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> be careful. Um, who's the head of song said, you should, this person should come with a warning label. Uh, but no, I think I'd probably go back to my junior high years. It's always problematic, I think, for anyone to grow up through adolescence, you know, especially think about today's kids. But for me, it was really challenging because I was bullied. I had a lot of self-doubt. Um, I, though consciously, didn't recognize it. Um, you know, I, I'm gay, and I didn't, I didn't know it then. But clearly, I think some other kids in school did, and I was just reject. I was, I can't even tell you. But I would go back to that kid. And I would say, this doesn't matter. It doesn't define you. No, because in the end, you know, it's, it's funny, those people who were so mean to me over the course of years, you know, I've had a degree of success, and they would reach out on Facebook with a friend request. Do you remember me? Yeah. And I'm kind of like, really? Really? But of course I would always do that because it's kind of the right thing to do. We're adults. Yeah. All yeah. That. So, but, I, but I would go back to that kid and I would say, listen, you are good enough. You're great the way that God made you. 
Embrace that. Don't be afraid of the others. Stand up to them and, and believe in yourself. I feel like that in the end, you kind of did do that, if you really think about it. I did. You know, and you go back and you think about any point in your life where there were struggles. I always say that's part of the recipe. I see my kids going through struggles. There was one point at which my son, you know, I have twins, a boy and a girl, they're now 18, and as a single gay man, it, I, the one, th actually, one of the reasons I never wanted to come out is because I didn't want, I prayed, I prayed, God, please don't let this be. Because more than anything, I wanted to be a dad. And I thought that if you're gay, you couldn't do that. But what I finally realized was that I could do that, even though I was, was single and was gay. And that was thanks to the gift of in vitro fertilization, an egg donor, and a surrogate. So two very special people coming together you know, to help me on my road to becoming a parent. And uh, actually, it's a lot more than that. We had five and a half years of trying, three surrogates, five egg donors, five embryo transfers. Mm. The, the highs, the lows, all on my shoulders, no one with whom to share that. But you know, like after the kids were born, all that kind of just washed away because you're in the glory of that, that moment that you did it, you know? What, what would you say during that, that trial time frame? Of, oh, let me, let me, I'm okay, sorry, before okay, we get okay, to that, yeah, sorry, I just want to share. So that story became my, my son when he, we, you know, we were in a, a private Montessori program for their elementary and I guess, yeah, elementary school years. When they went to a public school for middle school, you know, my kids were just so like, everybody had always been very accepting of them, no reason to hide anything. And so Braxton, you know, first day he gets to school, he's openly sharing with people, yeah, I got two dads and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's my husband, Eric. And uh, kids didn't respond the way that he thought. And so from that moment on, he was bullied. There were kids who with steel toe boots were kicking him, spitting on him. They, his nickname was Petri. They said, because you were born in a Petri dish, really mean and hurtful stuff. And there was a day about three years ago that my son came home from school and he was just crying. I said, dude, what's up? And he said, there was a girl who sits behind me. She and her friend were there and, you know, I kind of had my, a crush on one of them. And they said, uh, they were asking a question they didn't get the answer to from the teacher. The teacher didn't hear him or whatever. And so Braxton turned around because he knew the answer. He turned around and goes, oh, actually, you know what? The assignment's here. She goes, why would you even talk to me? You're so ugly. You're probably gay like your dad's. And he came home, and I see my son looking out the window and just questioning, why, why? I'm just trying to be a good person, Dad. It's unfair. It was unfair, but as difficult as it was in that moment, what I do know is that that is part of his recipe. Because of that experience, he then, throughout his adult life, is going to know firsthand what it is like to feel marginalized, what it is like to have, to have other people pick on you because of something of which you have no control. It's sad, isn't it, that people look for reasons to point out why you're not like me, rather than to think about, we have so much more in common. And we're all on our own path. Yeah. It's like with the kids, too, you know, Eric and I, we forget that we're gay. I literally forget that I'm gay. We'll go out in public and don't even think about it, you know? 
Um, we are just doing our best to raise two intelligent, self-confident, complete people with good hearts who will make a good, lasting, positive impact on our community, on our world. That's really it. I think you're doing a phenomenal job. I mean, I've worked with them, you know, several times just being there and like, they're, they're both- good kids, right? They're, yeah, personalities are like, there. Like, they're who they are. They're confident. Yeah, they're who they are. And like, that's really, I guess, in the end, what you would want them to be, you know, be you. You know, and they're so independent. Oops. They're so independent, sometimes I almost get a little frustrated with that because as your dad, as the dad, you kind of want to be needed. And, you know, like my son last night, he, he goes, here are the new tires that I'm buying for my car. I'm like, dude, I've owned over 300 cars over the course of my lifetime. I know this stuff. Why don't you even ask me? So he, I said, send me the link to these tires and I'll look it up. So I went and looked it up. He found the right tires. He found the best price. He didn't need me. Did a part of you like wish it was like, off so you can be like, oh, you should do these. Well, I did find, I, I did find one seller who was $5 less per tire. So I saved him 20 bucks. Hey, that goes distance. Yeah. It's, it's a thought process that maybe, maybe next time he's looking for something like, oh, let me double check and look for something else. Yeah. And I'm really proud of him, man. He's, uh, both of my kids are just phenomenal. Ava's going off to uh, Arizona State this next fall. Braxton's going to be uh, at UT in Knoxville. And, you know, they've done things which, I actually found out something that my son had done recently that he hadn't shared with me yet, uh, a business enterprise that he had undertaken. And oh. when I found out about it and just the degree of success that he has seen, I'm like, you're kidding me. I'm eager for him to share it with me so then I can really learn more about it. Well, or just give him the kind of pat on the back that he deserves. Yeah. That's awesome. I love, I love both of them. Honestly, every time I've, I've worked, I'm like, Braxton? Like, I just yeah. love like spending time He thinks the world of you. Really? He really does. And by the way, I want everyone who's watching or listening to this just to understand what a gift you are. You, in fact, are worthwhile. And you are very much uh, indicative of this kind of belief in yourself and the effort to try and do good by everyone else in the community. You know, I don't know what it is about you that caused you to say, I've got an idea. And then to have that idea and to have the courage to marry that to action. I mean, you've invested your own money, the hard-earned money that, that you've gone out and made into launching the Worthwhile brand. You have been the person to put this marketing campaign together. You have been the person, along with your team, to put this video podcast together. There are so many things about, so many ways about which you have approached what you are doing that those are the the hallmarks of someone doing something important for the right reason. You know, and it can be a very lonely road at the beginning until other people see the value in what you're doing. And, you know, I always say that people don't necessarily know what they need or want until they see it or they hear it. So the burden of caring worthwhile has rested squarely on your shoulders your belief in doing the right thing and your effort getting it to a place where then others can look at it and go, I didn't know that I needed that or what a cool brand. Here's someone who's trying to do something to affect the, 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 the good in our world. Mark, so I'm you're a shining that. example of that. All of the things that, that I, you know, you're asking me about, I could be asking you about. 
because I, I see it from an armchair perspective and what the world sees of Tyler is something that you may forget about on your own. Just as I forget that we're a gay family, you probably forget just what amazing you know, steps you have taken to making your dream come true. Thank you, for real. That and it's hard sometimes. Well, it's important because you have to stand back for a moment and take stock of the fact that, look at what I've done. You know, not to pat yourself on the back, but just to be aware, to understand that you're on the right path. And that then can become the fuel to take you to your next and level. I do want to touch on like the, the lonely aspect because like it takes a level of commitment mm -hmm that like this is what I'm going to do and like I, I made that decision like there there was a relationship I was in I was in a relationship for three and a half years and like I don't I don't date people like that like someone has to really catch my eye and like I'm I'm mission driven like if you don't mix in with what I'm doing then I'm not going like, to spend my time on that but I went through this breakup and it, it really I'm, the decision really stemmed from I can't be in a relationship and focus on growing this brand and and grow the ways I need to grow. So I made this decision based off of the brand. And like, at first, you know, I was like, all right, this is what needs to happen. But then I started really thinking, I'm like, how many decisions have I made thus far based off the brand mm -hmm. versus what I want? Mm -hmm. And then that really just like, I don't even know who I am, but I'm pushing a brand that's about being yourself. And I just started bartending at Southern Trey. I got to put a smile on all the time, like make people happy, which is cool. But like internally, I was depressed. I had no idea who I was and I'm trying to, to preach this message and it really, even getting into like, they said the money's the root of all evil. Like that, I now understand the concept of money and it's a tool and it's, it's really just shines light on who you really are. Mm -hmm. But like at that time frame, I'm like, I'm growing a, a business that you're supposed to make money with. And yeah. like, see to me, you're not doing it for the monetary gain. You're doing it for something far deeper than that. And you know, as far as the loneliness is concerned, there were the, during the two years that I was in LA after having gone through all this stuff in New York, uh, that I lived in an apartment complex with Mario Lopez and Leah Remini, and we had this gang that Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Uh, it was in Burbank, California. There were a lot of younger uh, hopefuls that lived in the building. Now my world, of course, was concerned with radio, but these others were aspiring actors, and uh, it was a really good time. But there were so many nights, because we did everything together. There were so many nights that, hey, we're gonna go play uh, volleyball or something down at the gym, do you wanna go? And although my immediate gratification really, really wanted to go, I would say no. And instead, quite literally, I was on the floor of my kitchen handwriting my business plan mm. and refining, and I, I turned down so many opportunities for that, like my brother, you know, um, here he is, arguably one of the, well, the leading authority in legal writing in America or the world today. Uh, I mean, you see him on C-SPAN, he's lost 60 minutes. I mean, he knows what he's done. Yeah. But when he was in law school, his fellow students, you know, he said, they were going to, they invited, say, let's all go watch the Super Bowl at the sports bar. And although Brian would really, have loved to do that at opportunities like that, he saw that as his opportunity. Like, this is when they're taking their eye off the ball. I'm gonna use that time to advance my mission. And that's why when he got out of law school, you know, he only practiced for one year before his first dictionary was published.
Well, Dictionary of Modern Legal Usage by Brian Garner, B-R-Y-A-N Garner, if you want to look him up. I mean, he's now got, I think, over 30 books published in the legal field, hmm. you know, and he's referenced in writings with the Supreme Court. So he, t- he took that time. It's funny, it didn't pop to my head, but like you said, people are going to watch the Super Bowl and they're taking their eye off the ball. Mm-hmm. Ironically, they're going to yeah. watch and it's a it, different ball. Yeah. They're yeah. watching somebody else's ball. Yeah. You know, and it's like what you said, those moments where you have to have the conviction of saying no to other opportunities because you have a greater mission, that's what I'm talking about, the loneliness. Yeah. You know, are you familiar with the second marshmallow? No. Is it a book or is it a no, it's a, it, no, it was actually a study that was done many years ago, and they, I think they did it primarily with three- and four-year-old kids who they would put him in a room just like this, and there was a table between us and the, the, the interviewer or whatever, just talk to them and kind of get them at ease. Go, oh, you know what I got for you? I got something very special. He was like, <gasps> and they would reach out and they'd get one of those big Stay puff marshmallows and they'd put it in front of them. So well, hold on a second, hold on a second. I have a challenge for you. You can eat this marshmallow right now. It's gonna taste so good. You're gonna love it. You can have it right now, but I'm gonna leave the room and if you can wait for 10 more minutes, I'm gonna give you two marshmallows. So eat the one that you want now, or hold back, wait for the second marshmallow, and then you'll get two. And there's a really good lesson in there, and I often talk to my kids about the second marshmallow. It's like that first marshmallow is the one that wants to go watch the Super Bowl. It's the one that wants to go play ball with my friends. Immediate gratification, that's right. But if you have a greater goal, you can wait for that second marshmallow. And then all the kids who ate their first one are like, well, you got two. It's like, well, I was patient. I made my decision. Yeah. Hmm. I, honestly, when you started telling that story, I thought you literally were saying that you had something for me. I was like, oh, what's he? Oh, no. I was like, I was that's like, just great acting. Yeah. No. <laughs> but I was, I was engulfed. I was like, But you know what I mean? That's, yeah, that's yeah. the whole deal. You have to, as an adult, you know, the, the things that you go through as a kid, the, the struggles that people go through in their lives, you know, it's so funny. You see people who say like, well, I'm going to move because, or I'm going to, I'm going to get a divorce because, and what they don't realize is that a lot of those issues are within them. So mm-hmm. when they move or they find a new relationship or whatever, it arises the again. same old thing. You got to do the work internally. Mm-hmm. Would you, uh, advice would you give to someone that is not familiar with the realm of internal work? Well, again, it goes back to making a choice. I think before we dive into that, that's one of the biggest things that with Worthwhile, like I've, I've spoken at a, a school, uh, EA Cox Middle School for their mm-hmm. anti-bullying campaign. <laughs> right. And the biggest thing, like I'm like, I'm talking to younger kids. I'm like, I don't know exactly what I want to deliver, mm-hmm. but the end of it was looking back on myself. I'm like, it's the choice. I don't think people really realize that the choice is yours, like that you can make mm-hmm. a choice. And I think that that's huge. I think that the, I always, it's funny, I've actually been kind of writing a book around this oh. very loosely, but it's called Staying in the Game. And, you know, you think about uh, roadblocks, you think about times of struggle. Every single person on this planet, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, if they are your motivators, or you know, you could even go back to uh, 
if it's more of a spiritual leader, Gandhi or whomever, within their journey, they've all had setbacks and effectively been knocked down. And I think that when life knocks you down and you're on that mat, this is where you decide who you are. If you are knocked down on that mat because of something external to you has caused this to happen, and other people are like, oh man, that just sucks for them. Yeah. The decision is yours. You can let that moment of being knocked down define you. Or, or you can say, this will not define me. What will define me is the fact that I summoned the courage to get back up and to show what I know I can do. And that moves mountains. It does move mountains. And you know, from that moment, the, that loss, that setback will not define you. No. I was actually reading something literally this morning about that very thing. Every successful person on this planet, part of that, that journey is always when something doesn't work. The, 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 the person who understands that, you know, all that is is just a challenge to get back up, the person who understands that it's within their control, those are the, the people you never think about, like, like I'll, I'll talk about Leah Rimini, uh, my friend who, you know, she was, when we met, she was on Saved by the Bell and then later did King of Queens and, you know, now this, uh, the Scientology thing, which she's wrapped up, there's an interesting story there. But, you know, you think about Leah and, um, I don't know, I don't even know how to put it. She had so many failed pilots for sitcoms. There was one that she had done with Charles During. Uh, there was one, something about, like, there were these models that all lived together. You know, she had done a number of different pilots for a number of different uh, potential series, which just failed miserably. And, you know, it, I, how did she pick herself back up? How did she keep going to auditions? How did she keep having meetings? You know, because, because she stayed with it, eventually, she and Kevin James, you know, did their thing. Huge star, huge success, because she stayed in it. The, the test of faith aspect. Test of faith and just saying, you know what, no, that's not going to define me. The yeah. fact that I did something that had so much promise with Charles Durning and these other things, I think it was Paper Doll, no, that's Morgan. Anyway, but she said, no, I'm, because I'm in it, and my day will come. And I think that's one of the things that I always taught myself was there was a point at which, uh, you know, I remember being uh, successful with the syndicated radio show and people talking about doing television and stuff like that. I was heavy. And I knew that in the back of my mind what I needed to do was I needed to be ready for that moment when it came. You know, you prepare. You put yourself in a place. You know, it's, you create luck. Manifestation. Mm -hmm. you, do you meditate? Not like I should. But you have before? I have. But, you know, I think that uh, mindfulness... Same concept. Yeah. 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 It's really important. Being aware of your thoughts. Being aware... Yeah, of, you know, that's, that's the interesting thing. There was a very critical voice uh, back in the late 70s when I was growing up that, you know, would 
always kind of poo-poo an idea or just say, ah, it's not going to work. You can't do that. And that's, that's my big mission in life, Tyler, is to tell people that whatever dreams you may have put to bed long ago because someone said, you're not good enough, that'll never work, that can't happen. What all of those people don't know is what you alone do know about what is inside of you. And all you have to do, those, those dreams did not die. They may have just been put aside for a bit. Put to sleep. Temporarily asleep, yeah. And then you've summoned the action, the courage to, to put that into action. And then your dreams become alive. And then all of those people who said, you can't, it's not good enough, it's a bad idea. Those are going to be the ones similar to me who have the Facebook friend requests. Be like, you're so lucky. Or, you know, yeah, I yeah. worked my ass off. Yeah. I... I did what other people said they couldn't. Every single thing in life that we have is because someone had a dream. Mm. Think about someone had a dream to make a container that would hold a hot or cold liquid for an extended amount of time that you could then carry around. They built the Eddie. Someone had the idea that we should be able to capture the video of what you and I are doing right now. So we have audio too. Video gear, audio gear. Someone had an idea, you know, Steve Harvey told a great story one time. He said that, uh, you know, at some point when we were growing up and you're on a phone call and your dog gets loose in the backyard and you're, you try to run out and get the dog with the cord stuck to the wall is keeping, someone said, wouldn't it be great if you could be on a phone where you could literally go out and chase your dog without being tied to the house? cell phones. Orville and Wilbur Wright thought, wouldn't it be great if we could fly like a bird and get to another place in a far less amount of time, in a much reduced amount of time? We got the airplane. No matter what you're thinking of, someone once had that as an idea. And what did they do? They took that idea, they married it to action, and they saw it through. And that's what you and I and every single person on this planet can do. But you have to let go of those voices that, you know, like I was saying, that, that critical voice that I was hearing back in the late 70s, what until the you know, mid-2000s that I finally realized, why am I letting this voice from so many years ago, why am I allowing that to affect my thoughts? Now. Now. Yeah. First of all, the person didn't have the right to do it back then. But why have I given them the ability to continue permeating my thoughts? And it's tough because you have to actively be self-aware enough to call it out when that happens and similarly say, no, no, you can't do that to me. Yeah. And you don't even have to say that to them or that voice. You say that to yourself. It's all to yourself. Yeah. yeah. You because allow. again, actions will always be louder than words. That's well said. Well said. Well, I'd love to give you this this gift right here. What? You want to go ahead and open her up? Yeah. Pr printed last I just night. I thought it was a good looking. Yeah. That's what. So I asked you those oh, colors. Oh, dude, are you serious? Yeah. I got my own worthwhile shirt. Printed it last night. Oh my gosh. Wait, what? You have your own printing? I do just stuff at home. Yeah, I do one of ones all the time. So you invested a lot of money in your. Oh game. yeah. Look at that. And you said blue and black. I, you, that's why you asked me my favorite colors? Last night, yeah. 
That's crazy. So this is literally like a one-off? Yeah, one-of-one. One. And that's where I made these, their individualities. So, when the holidays approach, and to everyone whom I've said, believe in yourself, know that you are good enough just the way you are, I can go to, what's the website? They're not on the website. I usually do them word of mouth, like someone asks me or they really? ask about it, and I'll be like, what's your favorite color or something, yeah. But if someone, if someone is watching, and they think this is the perfect way for me to tell someone that they are worthwhile, where can I send them? That's, so I want to start finding a way on the website that you can have an interactive approach where mm -hmm. you can create a shirt, in a sense, where you pick the- Oh, kind of like Adidas was doing with their, or Nike was doing with their shoes. Yeah, yeah, where like you pick the ink colors, and like the way I print them, I can use those same colors mm -hmm. every single time, mm -hmm. but it's going to be different. So it, it was a matter of like, I, I tried doing it on Shopify before where it's like, I, my alternate or my route ended up being you'd have to pick the shirt and then go in the notes and type what color you want. Mm -hmm. And like, as efficiency, people are not going to mm -hmm. do that. So I kind of let it go on the side and I've just kind of always just done it word of mouth wise. I'll bring them to like events and stuff like that, like stuff I've printed, but I really like to make them almost like personalized gifts. I mean, that's what you that's were thinking about. Okay, so I have a challenge for you, Ben. Today is June 26th? Yes. Something like that? Yeah. 2022. My challenge is for you, within 90 days, to have that function up and running on your website. So that in time for the holidays, people can go and they can order these shirts. Challenge accepted. I want you to put the action with that dream. I'll send you the link as soon as it's ready. Good. Thanks <laughs> to it. Fair. And everyone watching, he's going to have it available for you so that you can order the shirts for the holidays. Okay? Because it's a great gift and it's an important message to share with the people that you love. Now you have thank no you. way of backing out. No. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming You're so on. welcome, my I friend. Appreciate thank it. you for everything. I, I really thank you for doing what you do. It's inspiring. Thank you. You've, uh, you've definitely inspired me in different ways. So uh, Nice. Well, everyone, thanks for watching. Never forget that you are worthwhile and always strive to be the best version of yourself you can. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Worthwhile Spotlight. Our goal is to motivate people to become the best version of themselves possible through the power of storytelling. Our stories are written by the things that we experienced growing up, and these experiences, negative and positive, shape who we are and what we stand for. The beautiful thing about your story is that you get to decide how it's told. So as a diamond in the rough of life, hang tight and let your light shine bright.